0: Well, good morning, everyone. I'd like to welcome you to our time together. Welcome to those of you who are in line as well. And uh, some of you are there by choice, and you already planned to do this. And some of you just woke up and said, oh, I'm not going to make it today because the hour changed. You are welcome anyway. And we're just glad you're tuning in. And especially, well, not especially, we're glad you guys here are here as well. And uh, as we continue in our series on Jesus' heart for us, today I want to start by talking about someone you may never have heard of before, but who was pretty prominent uh, about 25 or 30 years ago. His name is Philip Yancey. And uh, he was a Christian author, and he's been writing books for about 30 years now. And these have included What's So Amazing About Grace, and one was called Disappointment with God, and that's the one that I read. Um, way back when I was going through a really hard time in my life and I struggled in my relationship with God because I didn't understand his presence and his purpose in what I was going through. And I think that book helped me a bit, but that was the last time I had interacted with Yancey in the last 25 years of my life. And then recently I heard an interview of him and he's now 74 years old. And he's written a memoir called Where the Light Fell, and it reflects on his life and his journey with God. So Yancey grew up in a poor family in Atlanta, Georgia, and they first lived in a trailer, not a mobile home, a trailer, eight feet wide by 28 feet long. His father died when he was one, so it was just his mother, his older brother, and himself, And he tells the story of the church that he grew up in. He calls it now a white, racist, and paranoid church. The gospel preached there was all about following God's commands or else you'd go to hell. This church averaged over a thousand attenders every week. But for a significant time, they would not allow people of color to worship there. Eventually that changed, but then a young black student who really liked the Bible-centered preaching of this church wanted to join the church as a member. And so they held a congregational meeting about this, and the church voted to reject it. Only whites could become members there. This was the environment in which Yancey grew up. And eventually he found out a detail about his father's death that really shook him. And he began to seriously question his faith. He couldn't understand how the people of God could justify excluding fellow human beings from their community. And he didn't want to relate to a God who would send you to hell for disobeying one of his commands. He stumbled around for several years. And then the interviewer asked him, well, what brought you back to God? And Yancey answered three things. One, the beauty of nature, two, the brilliance of classical music, and three, the deep love he found in his wife. And God used each one to reveal himself and show Yancey who he really was. The interviewer concluded by asking Yancey how he persevered through the loss of his dad when he was only one, through a poverty-stricken upbringing in a legalistic home and a racist church. And Yancey credited the Lord. And then said this at the end, which really stuck with me. He said, I lived for 20 years under law, but the last 50-plus years I've lived under grace. And that's a pretty good deal. Now, isn't it sad that Yancey had to leave the church to find God. Yet his story is not unique. So called Bible believing churches can twist the Bible to justify gospel crushing regulations. And we call this legalism the belief that if you keep certain rules or laws, you will be right with God. And it often happens when a particular church imposes their culture on top of the gospel and says, you have to abide by our culture to be a true Christian. This can slip into our lives in different ways and different forms. And it can lead to completely missing God's heart for us. Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lonely, addresses this in the chapter entitled, Our Law-ish Heart's and his lavish heart. And today we're going to look at this issue of living by law or grace in relationship to Jesus' heart. And we will look at a passage where legalism infected the heart of one of Jesus' disciples for a short period of time, and another Christian leader confronted him about it and then wrote the story about it later, which we will look at today. And my prayer for this message is that we we will see that we can live under Jesus grace rather than law because of what he's done and because of his heart for us so our text today is Galatians chapter 2 it's page 825 in the Bibles you have in front of you if you're here with us today this is the Apostle Paul writing we're going to look at verses 11 to 21 and when you see the name Cephas that's another name for the d- disciple Peter so Cephas is Peter So Galatians 2, starting in verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Now to understand this situation, we have to step back for a moment and realize the cultural context in which it happened. Remember, Jesus was Jewish. All the 12 disciples were Jewish. Jesus came from a Jewish bloodline that went back to King David. And Jesus' message and ministry happened mostly among the Jewish population. At that time, they were very distinct Cultural, ethnic, and religious differences that separated Jews from non-Jews, whom they called Gentiles. Jews generally despised Gentiles as unclean, pagan, sinners. They called them names like dogs and the uncircumcised. There was mutual animosity between Jews and Gentiles. In fact, Orthodox or strict Jews would not even travel through a region of the Gentiles like Samaria. Samaria, the people of Samaria were descendants of Jews who had intermarried with other people. So Orthodox Jews would not even go into Samaria but would take a longer route around which is why the parable of the Good Samaritan was so scandalous. Jews would not Eat with Gentiles because they might get ritually defiled by the food that Gentiles served. Nor would Jews go into the house of a Gentile lest they be defiled and unable to participate in religious rites. And we see this happen the morning of Jesus' crucifixion when the Jewish religious leaders would not come into Pilate's palace for fear of defilement that would prevent them from partaking in the Passover. So they lived in a prejudicial system with much tension. And along comes Jesus, who ministers mostly to Jewish communities. But he also ministers in non-Jewish regions. He ministers to Romans, to Greeks, to the Syrophoenician woman, to the demon-possessed man who lived among the tombs in a Gentile region, and this pointed to the universal invitation of the gospel to Jew and Gentile, to everyone. The church was supposed to be a multi-ethnic, multicultural community that tore down the walls of societal separation. Both Gentiles and Jews would come together to live under the Lord Jesus Christ. But just because this was God's intention does not mean that it just happened. When the desegregation laws came into effect in the southern United States in the 1960s, desegregation did not just happen the next day. It took years and decades for this change to fully take effect. And the same was true for the integration of Jews and Gentiles in the early church. Now, God was helping the church's early leaders to make this transition, for they themselves were Jews. He gave Peter a vision about this in Acts chapter 10. So by the end of Acts 10, Peter says in Acts 10 verse 28, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So Peter has got the message. Peter realizes, yes, God is calling Gentiles into his church. Yet some Jews concluded that Gentile Christians still had to follow Jewish regulations to become full Christians. And this included circumcision. This was the sign of the covenant of the Old Testament in Genesis 17, instituted with Abraham. So this circumcision party, as Paul calls them, that came to Antioch that day expected Gentile converts to abide by Jewish regulations. Which brings us to the incident in Galatians 2, starting in verse 11. And Peter comes to visit this church in Antioch, which is in Syria, a non-Jewish country. So there's obviously Gentiles in this church. Peter has no problem eating with the Gentiles. He lives like a Gentile in Paul's eyes until, according to verse 12, some Jews from the circumcision party show up, Jews who are associated with James, the Lord's brother in Jerusalem. They had trusted Christ as Messiah, but it still insists that Gentiles need to follow Jewish law to fully enter into the Christian community. So those of the circumcision party would not eat with Gentile Christians when they got to Antioch and they show up and Peter joins them in this. He withdraws from the Gentiles and maybe he knew about the tension that these Gentiles would feel when these Jews from Jerusalem came or maybe he was concerned about the Jews from Jerusalem And the upset that they would feel if they saw him eating with Gentiles. So maybe Peter thought, I'm just going to slide back into Jewish practice for a little while here. It's still pretty widespread in our culture. The Gentile Christians will understand. I'll just do this while these men are here so as not to make waves. Except Peter is a prominent leader. One of Jesus' closest disciples. He had a lot of influence and according to verse 13... Every Jewish Christian there joined Peter in separating from the Gentiles to eat. They all acted this way, implying they thought it necessary that these Gentile Christians, their brothers and sisters in Christ, needed to follow Jewish laws to be fully Christian. And Paul sees this. And immediately discerns this cannot go on. This does not line up with the multicultural, multi-ethnic new people of God that Jesus came to save. So he publicly confronts Peter in verse 11. I opposed him to his face. And Paul doesn't just say to Peter, hey Peter, can I talk to you outside? He confronts them in front of everyone. According to verse 14, I said to Cephas, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? So imagine this scene. Peter and the circumcision party and all the Jewish Christians are over here eating. And you have the Gentile Christians over here eating. And maybe there's some tension. Maybe the Gentile Christians are wondering, what is Peter doing? What's going on? I thought this wasn't the way it was going to be. And Paul, in front of them all, confronts Peter. And the room goes silent. And Paul says, Peter, you came here and you ate with Gentiles and had no problem doing that. Then these ones from the circumcision party show up and you suddenly separate from the Gentiles, acting like they do need to follow Jewish laws to be complete Christians. And then we don't know what happened. Paul just drops the story. We're not even sure if he's still talking about it in verse 15 or if he has moved into a teaching section. But the point is made in verses 11 to 14. Peter acted as if Gentiles needed to follow Jewish law in addition to faith. To become full Christians. And Paul was right to confront him about this. For the true gospel says anyone can come to the Lord by faith. And that's what he goes on to explain in verse 15. Where he says we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And I think what he's doing there is he's using a common Jewish slur against Gentiles. So it's like he's saying, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So even though we're Jews by birth and we're not Gentile sinners, we know that the only way to be made right with God is through faith. And to be justified means to be right with God or to gain right standing with God. God. It means that the conditions have been met for us to enter into intimate fellowship, close fellowship with God and those conditions required atonement for our sin. Since God is holy, he cannot by his nature fellowship or be in close relationship with someone who's covered by sin. But God provided the way to resolve that. We can have our sins covered by faith in Christ and what he did on the cross. And then God considers us covered by Christ, by Christ's righteousness, by his blood sacrifice for us. And we are justified. We don't have to work or keep obeying some of God's laws to stay in this justified relationship with God or for him to keep loving us. And that's what Paul says at the end of verse 16. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And then come verses 17 to 19, which are hard to interpret. But I think... What's happening here is Paul is addressing a potential objection. And the objection is, goes something like this. So Paul, you're saying that we don't have to keep works of the law, it's not but we're justified. So we're we justified just by faith. And then we do that and we, we're still sinners. So is Christ leading us into sin according to your system? And Paul says, no, of course not. We even discover that when we were trying to keep the law, we couldn't do it. We found out we were still sinners by trying to be justified by the law. So instead, we need to let go of attempting to get right with God by keeping the law and instead live to God. And then verse 20 comes, which Paul describes the dramatic change in his life. And here we also find Jesus' heart for us. So he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So this life in Christ resulted in massive change in Paul's life. His old self and ways got crucified with Christ. He no longer lives for himself and his selfish desires... Christ lives in him and empowers him to live in a God-honoring way. And he describes this in the last half of verse 20. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. So do you see that? He lives his daily Christian life by faith. So we need this initial faith to come to Christ. And then we need daily faith to keep living a God-honoring life. And at the end of verse 20, we find Jesus' heart for us. What is Jesus' heart for us? Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So out of his great love for us, Jesus gave up his life for us. Because of his great love and sacrifice, we can receive reconciliation with God by trusting in Christ and what he has done. And yet, so many of us here and so many of you watching online already know that. I think people in Philip Yancey's church knew this, I think Peter knew this. So, what happens? Peter, people in Philip Yancey's former church, and you and I might slip into a performance-based relationship with God, where we think, if I keep these laws over here, if I obey this command over here, God will keep me in his family. God will continue to love me. At least he won't send me to hell. And even though we started our relationship with God by faith in Jesus Christ, we slide into this performance based relationship. And that's what the letter of Galatians is all about because Paul is confronting the Galatians on the fact they're doing this. He says in chapter 3, verse 3, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? So you came to Christ in faith, but now you're going to live by good deeds and works and think that somehow God's going to owe you, you're going to keep God's love for you? Is that how you think it works? So the danger is we can slip into a performance-based relationship with God. So we receive Christ by faith, but we conclude that to keep this relationship, to keep God's love, we have to perform. We have to do good works, or he might cut us out of his family. He might send us to hell, so we better keep doing good works. Now, when I put it like that, it sounds ridiculous. Maybe. So why would anyone do that? Well, well, I think one reason we might live like this is we may have experienced performance-based love in human relationships. That was part of Philip Yancey's issue. His mother raised the two boys from a performance-based love standard. If they obeyed her and did exactly what she said, things were good. If they disobeyed her, she blew up in anger again and again, threatening them with abandonment, that God will send them to hell, that she will disown them. And there are many stories of adult children living To prove themselves to a parent who never said I love you or never showed love to them. The children don't know if their parents love them. So by nature they are trying to earn the parent's love. They live a life of performance in an attempt to gain or earn their parent's approval or love. It can be a discouraging way to live. You never know if you have done enough or done the right thing to bring forth love from that one person that you're trying to please. Remember the prodigal son story? When he came to his senses, the prodigal son concluded, well, I might as well go home. I'm no longer worthy to be called his son, but at least I'll be a hired hand. Performance-based approach to love. The elder son lived the same way. He decided and believed that since he had perfectly obeyed his father... His father would love him more. So when the father responds to the prodigal son. With grace. And with love. It totally blows this performance based system out of the water. And we don't know how the prodigal son responded to this. But we do know how the elder brother responded. With anger. And bitterness. And a refusal to come in and join the party. And we can project this performance-based expectation onto God. We conclude, if we want to keep God's love or increase God's love for us, we need to do the good works and perform well for him to keep loving us. And our hearts harden like the elder brothers. Yet this thinking reveals an inaccurate view Of God and his love for us. So we need the Bible to correct us. Does Galatians 2.20 say. The life I now live in the flesh. I live by performance. Before the son of God who will keep loving me. If I do enough good works. No. The life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the son of God who. Loved me. And gave himself for me before I was even born. We can live by faith every day in one who already loves us and has given himself for us. And we need to examine if we have adopted this performance-based approach to our relationship with God and think that's the only way we can receive his love. Why else might we slide into a performance-based relationship with God? thinking we have to do that to earn or keep or increase his love. And and I think another reason is we may have concluded that love only happens during times of relational harmony. It's way easier to feel loved when we're getting along well with another person or when they approve of us or when a parent and child are getting along. Who wouldn't want to stay there? Yet if we think love can only be found in the warm, fuzzy, and harmonious moments how do we interpret harder moments? Or when hard things happen do we conclude well God must have stopped loving me because it's not harmonious right now so I've got to do something to earn it back to return to this state of harmony. Yet is that true? Is love only found in moments of harmony? Say, say we blow it and we need to confess to someone or maybe as a kid we disobeyed our parent and we need to have a hard conversation or they need to have a hard conversation with us. They need to discipline us. Does that mean they stop loving us even though we don't experience relational harmony in that moment? No. Proverbs 3 Twelve says God disciplines those whom He loves, and Hebrews twelve eleven acknowledges: for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So, so we need to examine our hearts again, and and, and when hard things come into our lives, it doesn't mean God has stopped loving us. God still loves us and walks with us through those hard things, even when we don't feel close to him, maybe. And we need to examine, have I adopted a performance-based relationship with God? How, how would you know if you've done that? I, I think some indicators might be your Christian life is dread, like drudgery, obligation, maybe frustration, maybe just duty. Maybe we live in constant fear of God, an unhealthy fear, and then we may have slipped into this, and we think we have to earn or keep or increase Christ's love by doing things that please him and never be sure if he's actually satisfied. That's not the biblical picture. We need to hear that the Son of God loved us, gave himself for us before we ever thought of him. And Ortland gives this example to grasp how we need to change. He says, think of a vent that connects to your bedroom from the furnace room and it's a cold winter day. If you keep your vent closed, the heat will circulate through the home, but you will not experience much warmth because you're closing it off. Opening the vent floods your room with warmth. The heat was already there, waiting to be accessed, but you were not benefiting from it. And when we take a performance-based approach to our walk with Jesus, it's like we've closed ourselves off to the vent of his love. Our relationship becomes cold, rigid, guarded, and transactional. We look at the Lord as an angry landlord who is only appeased when we pay our rent, but he wants nothing else to do with us the rest of the time. But Galatian helps us open the vent to the one who loved us and gave himself for us. And so today, as we come to the Lord's table, I want to invite you to open up the vent of your life to the warmth of the Son of God's love. And maybe you've been living thinking he's just disappointed in me all the time. So you've pulled back just to ensure you don't bug him or upset him, but that's not how Jesus sees you. That's not his heart for you. He loved you and gave himself for you before you were born. And when we recognize this reality, our Christian walk can change from one of drudgery to delight from obligation to joy, from insecurity to security. And then we don't live abusing this and thinking, oh, we can sin all the more. When we really grasp this and how much Christ has loved us and given himself for us, we are motivated by a desire to joyfully honor Christ because of the firm foundation his steadfast love gives to us. So if you have never received Christ before, You don't have to adopt some Christian culture thing that you think you have to do. You have to, by faith, put your trust in Christ and God will adopt you into his family as his child and you will begin the journey of living from Christ's love. And if you are already a Christian here today and you have received Christ by faith, continue to live by faith from Christ's love for you. Let us pray together. Lord Jesus, we come to you today and acknowledge that we live in a performance based world. Our jobs, our grades, often our relationships depend on performance. And to some extent, as humans, that's all we can do, but you're not like us in this. You loved us and gave yourself for us before we were born. And we can't quite comprehend it all, but help us, Lord. Help us to shake off sliding into that performance-based living for you. Help us to somehow grasp your deep love and sacrifice for us and just accept it and then live from your love. It's hard, Lord. We don't know. We don't know how to live like this a lot of the time. But help us to be open to receive. And as we come to your table, Lord, Expose in our hearts any ways in which we have started to live like this and help us to see the true you. We pray this in Jesus' name, your name, amen.